Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Rosh Balkaran, and today I have the double delight of speaking with Dr. Anya Foxen, who is Assistant Professor at California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. Um, and also, I have with us uh, the Vice President of Standards at Yogic Alliance, Krista Kuberi. They are both co-editors of a, an intriguing, fascinating, timely, hot-off-the-presses Rutledge book called Is This Yoga? Concepts, Histories, and the Complexities of Modern Practice. Welcome both to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So so whose brainchild this is? How did this project come about? Like, well, There must be a backstory or five to this. Someone tell it to me. I love piranhas. Yes. Uh, <laughs> if you want me to start, Anya, you can always fill in. <laughs> Yeah, I think so uh, Anya and I are both um, scholars and in the religious studies field and every year would attend the American Academy of Religion conference. And early in our graduate studies, I believe, sort of developed a mutual intellectual crush on one another. And we were both doing looking at yoga, but from similar yet varied angles. And at one conference, we had both been approached multiple times that there needed to be a book that put together both the histories of yoga as well as what's going on today and made sense for people in that both, I would say, continuity and complexity. And um, do you want to continue how that story went, Anya? Yeah, I mean, I think it it was sort of a the stars aligned kind of scenario, right? Because um, Yes, I, I forget now the exact sequence of events, but I know that you and I just sort of sat down over lunch and were like, oh, we should write a textbook because there's nothing like this out there. Um, and I don't remember your side of it, but I know that same conference, I was supposed to talk to the editor at Rutledge and I didn't actually know about what. Um, and I got so busy that I never made the meeting. But about a month later, she emailed me and was like, hey, so I was hoping to talk to you. And I know we never got around to it. But would you be interested in writing a textbook on yoga? And I was like, well, you know, it just so happens that my colleague and I were talking about this exact thing. Um, and it sort of went from there, I think. Synchronicity strikes again. Mm-hmm. Um, so so as you may or may not know, I ask uh purposefully naive questions on the podcast to sort of um, elicit discussion and sort of meet people where they are in the audience. So who's this book for, guys? What's the intended audience of this book? Well, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, it, it, so it is an undergraduate textbook through Rutledge, right? It, it has that sort of pedigree to it. 
Um, but I think the way that we conceived it, it was always supposed to do this kind of double duty of um, it is academic, it is scholarly, it can certainly be used in undergraduate or even graduate classes. Um, but, you know, uh, both of us being scholar practitioners, I think we always wrote it with a practitioner audience in mind. Yeah, exactly. And thinking, you know, from where I sit um, as, as vice president of standards and in charge of educational content, I hear from so many people about wanting a deeper context, a more complicated story, um, a deeper understanding of yoga. And what was currently on the market was either very rigorous academic texts or, you know, more popular. So sort of being the bridge between those. It's rigorous and accessible and really made, as Anya said, for, yes, undergraduates, but also for yoga teacher training programs, for interested practitioners, for those who want to do a deeper dive into this thing called yoga. So there's so many things that you've said there that are so fascinating for me and resonant in that I sort of live on that bridge <laughs> between <laughs> the production of um, a sort of pedigreed academic knowledge um, and accessibility, like whether it's events for the OCHS, whether it's a podcast, I, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm just realizing it more and more with each passing day. This is what I love to do, uh, bar none, which is teach broadly and accessibly um, what we so labor to find out at the academy. And there just seems to be this glaring divide between the production of rigorous knowledge and its its accessibility to people. 100%. So That's like my jam uh, as well. And, and, and the bridge I also inhabit, <laughs> as well as Anya, I would say. It's a big bridge. Um, right. <laughs> so um, how do I... Okay. What is the structure of the book? How is the book structured? Well, it's structured into three parts, uh, which are all in the title, actually, right? So it's it's concepts, histories, and the complexities of modern practice. Um, and so we wanted, our goal was to sort of make it this, you know, kind of multi-layered holistic thing, where on the one hand, if you wanted to read just part of it, so say you really wanted to learn about the subtle body in yoga or something like that. Um, you, you could pluck out that chapter um, and it could stand alone as a sort of more or less self-contained thing. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, you know, just sort of dealing with how complicated yogic traditions tend to be, we also felt like doing it in layers like that sort of, I think, at least try to do justice um, to that history and the complexity. So there's a lot of sort of like relayering and circling back, right? So the concept starts really broad and we're really dealing with kind of like templates and frameworks, um, still historically, but also just really conceptually, right? So we, we deal with bodies, we deal with cosmologies. Uh, there's a chapter on, on myth in there and kind of yogic role models. Um, and then in the middle section, we really go historically through, you know, yoga ancient into modern. Um, and then the final section really picks up on that modern piece and deals with some of those thematic issues that I think today's practitioners really deal with. Um, so that was definitely sort of where Krista's expertise in the yoga world, I think, was like, I, I don't know what I would have done without it um, in terms of even beginning to approach this project. So it's really awesome that we did it together. Um, that's where you get into, you know, kind of authority and gurus and uh, the sort of the therapeutic side of yoga and things along those lines. That's fascinating. So just a bunch of synchronicities. These podcasts just happen whenever they happen and they're timed. I mean, who knows how? I just, whatever. We book people. I'm constantly booking people for the podcast. But I just got off of a tutorial um, 
uh, today from one of my um, online School of Indian Wisdom courses, and it's called Sacred Body. It's about, you know, the, the subtle body and various concepts. And there were so many questions pertaining to this publication that I end up just saying, you have to hear this podcast and then take a look at this book because that chapter is for you. And you can have a sense of what's coming from tradition, what we have textual access to, and then what's coming from Parampara or what's coming from more of a new age movement. And it's, it's, um, I was saying to you just before we started the podcast that uh, without trying, uh, the vast majority of my students are in- heavily involved in the yoga world, um, yoga teachers, studio owners, and they're so, so interested in what I perceive as this process of separating the wheat from the chaff or trying to understand you know, what's authentic or not. Interestingly enough, I did this course at Yogic Studies called Yoga and Hindu Mythology. Someone oh, emailed me just... Well, yeah. yeah just before this podcast someone emails me and says i don't know where and they're like i took your course and then i found you at the school and i want to know more about these mythic archetypes and um i'm really looking forward to this book that you're writing about the myths behind yoga postures and there's just such an interest in this stuff that it's astonishing tell us a little bit about what you do in chapter uh, three mythologies yoga role models what's that chapter about well, that was, uh, I mean, that was in some ways the response from myself uh, as, as a yoga teacher, yoga practitioner, uh, scholar of yoga for over 20 years now. And that often coming up, people want to link these ideas to the myths, to the postures. Um, and again, not a real rigorous sort of look at all of that and taking it from both the micro and the macro and the broad and the narrow and, and giving a space for talking about this practice as both ritual and myth and what that means both from traditions and concepts and histories, but also the way that that is applied uh, and embodied really in practice today. So, um, you know, I think again, it's really great that Anya and I were able to write this book together because she is a historian and a Sanskritist and uh, deeply imbued and in those texts and those traditions and myself as more of a contemporary uh, cultural theorists looking at how this lives today and and placing that chapter in that moment in terms of myth. Do you want to speak to that more, Anya? Yeah, I mean, I think that is kind of the cool thing about it, right? Because it is like it's got that historical backbone to it um, in the sense that these are, um, I, I kind of hesitate to call them archetypes, but maybe that's really the word uh, that have been sort of present there. Um, throughout, you know, the history of yogic traditions. But I think the real structuring principle, like when we sat down to think about this chapter, was also, you know, what are what are the figures that still sort of float out there in the yoga world, right? That people, whether at, at studios or trainings or just people kind of trying to discover on their own, are still kind of trying to grasp onto, right? And ask these questions about and figure out like, okay, well, what, what does this mean, right? And how do we fit it into kind of the, the general framework of, of yoga or what it means to be a yogi? Mm-hmm. And also just anecdotally, I hear a lot of people go to like bhakti trainings or other things and chant mantras to, to deities and never have any context whatsoever about even what that means or who they're speaking to. And so really being able to fill that that void to a certain extent as well of, of again, just to use the bridge metaphor of these exist in these places as ideas, as real concepts, as deities, and they also move and change in our understandings of them, just like everything. So um, it was actually, it was, a, it was not the easiest chapter to write, to be honest, because it's a very big topic. <laughs> 
Uh, I've gathered. <laughs> There's a lot there, definitely. No, it's fascinating, and and there there are, there are, from my perspective, a variety of different types of bridging that's occurring in in in, in the book. Um, one, of course, is the one that I mentioned before in terms of sort of the ivory tower or the public divide. Uh, another is sort of theory practice. Mm-hmm. Another is sort of um, to be crude, you know, east-west, right? Uh, cultural context, right? right? Uh, or you know, uh, we've we've transplanted the banyan, but is there any Indic soil that it can thrive from? You know, like something along those lines. Um, what about the second section where we look at history? Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's to be found in those three chapters? Yeah. So. That was actually, I mean, in its own way, that was a tricky section. Um, I think we struggled a bit with how exactly to split that up because at first we were thinking, okay, maybe we do, you know, groups and then text because, you know, text is in practice ultimately. Um, And then we did end up going with kind of more or less standard chronological thing in the end, even though that proved tricky in its own ways. Uh, So there's three chapters in that section. The first chapter is essentially, we call it ancient to uh, classical yogas. Um, Then the second chapter picks up with the classical, goes into the medieval. And then the final chapter we call the rise of modern yoga, right? So basically deals with the kind of postural stuff that we're more familiar with today. Um, And I I mean, I think it it was tricky to some extent because, of course, you're trying to cover what? 3,000 years in the space of three chapters, uh, which is a lot. Um, and, and that final chapter, in a sense, is the most focused one, because in a sense, modern yoga is such a modern development, um, comparatively speaking, at least in the form that we know it today. Um, but but in the, in the other two chapters in that section, we do try to sort of do justice to the fact that really from the ancient period onwards, uh, this is this is a set of practices, really, not even just a single practice. This is a term um, that has really meant a wide variety of things. Um, and so that's the section in which we really deal with the fact that, you know, there are practices that maybe were not called yoga at the time, such as in the ancient period, uh, that we still may want to sort of look at under this rubric today, because of course they do become relevant sort of further down the line historically. Um, and then on the other hand, there is this, even as we move forward, uh, there's this variety of things uh, that gets called yoga. And there's different types of yogas, right? And there's reasons, there's maybe political reasons that people call things yoga um, that don't only have to do with what the stuff looks like, right? It also has to do with what the stuff does. So it's it's us kind of trying to trace a historical line, Um and maybe it's it's more a, a set of entangled and only occasionally parallel lines uh, that ends well, up coming out. But yeah. And that's exactly where theory meets practice, right? This is where we really introduce the concept of rhizome um, and that notion of yoga as a rhizome and a, a continuously growing plant that's, that, you know, spreads via a vast subterranean network of roots and stems and not like a tree that is hierarchical. So thinking about how it has nodes of, of ideas rather than one centered or hierarchy. And that very much comes from my master's thesis work on looking at Deleuze, who's a French philosopher. And I was really interested when, with his theory, but I wanted to make it practical. I wanted to think about what that looks like. And for me, that is the, the really the theory that makes most sense to me than, than something like what we talk about in the book, the pizza metaphor, where it's an implant. I think it's much more interesting and much more complicated and, you know, really 
these ideas of these nodes and then how they grow, right? Some grow in these vast groves and some grow only as little seeds. And that's how we see lineages and ideas of yoga get transplanted. So that's really where we tried to, in some ways, both in, still do the teleological thing, but also make it subterranean. <laughs> it, it really seems to me that the study of yoga Right, the study of whatever you want to call yoga, this four-letter word that means many things to many people, that um, given that it's so um, entrenched in various strands of Indic religion, philosophy, theology, mysticism, thought, right? It's sort of um, it's like studying Indian religion itself, right? That there are so many strands, so many orders uh, of uh, orders of reality that you're studying, so many points of entry. And I come back to this time and time again because it's something that was instinctive to me as I started to study the Puranas, and I've worked as hard as I can to try to articulate it in logical, um, scholarly uh, arguments that the Puranas are a web. They're not texts. They're not texts the way we think of texts. Um, 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 even the texts that we think are texts are sort of like um, uh, uh, the, the, the notes of, of, of a musician, right? Mm-hmm. That someone has to bring to life through practice, through, through elucidation, through jamming, right? And it's a web. And it seems that um, um, whenever you're encountering data from South Asia, particularly pervasive data that pertains to the je ne sais quoi called yoga, that um, you're always wise to understand that it's always going to be both and or beyond a very uh, specific concrete definition. Mm-hmm. Its complexity is why it's relevant still, mm-hmm. right? And that's very difficult, I think, to grapple with, particularly through the mode of scholarship, because you're trying to find out what a thing is, how A relates to B, right? You're drawing lines. You're, you're, you're trying to find discrete mm-hmm. uh, uh, pieces of knowledge or factoids. And really, it's a web. And I think that uh, once we start off with that truth, then it's sort of like, uh, you know, when I teach intro Hinduism, I call it the Hindu jungle. But it might as well be called the yoga jungle, right? It's a jungle. You're never going to have a grand unified theory of the jungle, but you're going to understand certain things as as you can discern them with your consciousness. Enough of my pontificating. My point is... No, I think it's 100% on point, too. I mean, the joke is that both and is going to be what's written on my gravestone because... <laughs> That's sort of this work of, of recognizing, yes, but there's also this space between and, you know, theories like uh, Soja's third spaces or Jonathan Z. Smith and how he defines difference for us and how we can look at that um, in ways that instead of narrowing, it opens spaces, right? It's, it's I think, fascinating. Generative, right? Generative, Generative. like Raman as the inexhaustible potential for creativity, it's, it's an opening up of and a connecting to rather than a necessity to close off at all times. And I think that's one way that yoga scholarship is so fascinating is it's so, <laughs> there's so much there, there. <laughs> it's like a mashup song. <laughs> Indeed. Um, let's talk about the third uh, section of the book. So for those of you listening, there are three sections, each containing three chapters. Uh, we'll talk about the third section. And then maybe we'll have broader discussion about the world beyond the text. Um, so remind us again what the third section is about. What do we find in there? So really the third section deals with the, the modern space and the complexities of modern practice. And 
looks at the ways in which yoga has been commodified or politicized or otherwise transformed in this modern global context. Um, and it really, it deals with things like gurus and lineages and commodification and authenticities and um, not only that, but the ways in which the scientific community and yoga therapeutics uh, and nation states and uh, politics and how all of the things that are happening now have entered into the conversation and really changed the ways in which yoga is being defined today. So really thinking about Andrea Jane's selling yoga, um, Amanda Lucia's work that she's doing, the ways in which we're on the ground interacting with lived experiences of yoga and really, um, in my sense, I think there is and has been really a hole in the looking at the modern day notions of yoga as scholarship. So we do this whole look up into the colonial period and then there's a stoppage. So this is really looking at the stuff we're grappling with today. Um, and once again, thinking about the practitioner, thinking about the yoga world and the landscape of it, but coming at it from academic rigor uh, and scholarship and research. So what would you say, um, I don't like to ask leading questions. So what would you say struck you about what you, what you came across? Like what stands out to you in terms of what you ended up writing about in the section? You know, I think, I think to some extent, um, I mean, really throughout that section, maybe less in the, in the therapeutics chapter, just because that is still such a, an underexplored area of the stuff. But, um, I mean, the thing that struck me was actually like how much stuff there already is on on these issues out there. So I, we were so grateful for our colleagues, again, as Krista named, like Andrea Jane, Amanda Lucia, um, all of these scholars that have sort of been analyzing these issues um, in a very rigorous, uh, you know, kind of cultural analytical way. Um and, and I mean, have been doing this for, for a decade. And it's not to say that yoga students aren't necessarily reading those books, but, but not all of them certainly are, right? You don't get selling yoga assigned in your yoga teacher training the way that you get the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Um, and so what, what really, I think, resonated with me was trying to sort of figure out, okay, like, here's this really cool stuff. Um, here's this analysis um, that these awesome scholars have been doing. How do we sort of digest this um, and, and put it out there in a way that sort of directly plugs into um, this kind of framework that we're trying to build for yoga students and practitioners and teachers? Um, and I mean, actually, once I at least once I started thinking about it, it was maybe almost easier than I expected it to be um, because this stuff is so relevant. Right. And, and to some extent, it does all connect. Um, so that was actually like a really rewarding section for me to think through. Yeah, Probably because it's relevant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The practicality of it all. And, you know, for me, I think in some ways it was really my my ability to be able to bring together you know, the research that I did, my dissertation work, which was the identity of American yoga, um, the space that I'm in right now as more of the business side of it and seeing the corporate and seeing all of that, as well as thinking about how I have both been involved in this sort of neo-spiritual, I fit the part of white upper middle class woman I embody that space, I wear the Lululemon, all of that stuff. And then also as a scholar of that, how do I do that critical analysis and live in those spaces, 
really, again, is a both and. Um, and that's how I've, I've always really hoped to approach the work as, you know, insider, outsider, um, as well as giant nerd, both on the scholar side and practitioner side of yoga. I think for both of us, that section was definitely the most personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can't not be right. And it, I think it signals a turn uh, both in scholarship and in other movements. I was chatting with, who was I chatting with? You have all these Zoom conversations. And you're like, what was a coaching call? What was a tutorial? What was a podcast? I can't remember where I was saying this. Um, <laughs> oh, actually, um, it was a podcast, but it was flipped for, for a change. I was um, I was being interviewed by Jacob Kyle, Embodied oh, Philosophy. Yeah. And there was a lot of discussion about this, quote unquote, scholar practitioner and and what is the thing what it's needed like it's changed there's so much there um could you say a a word about um what you think about all that or what do you feel about this 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 scholar practitioner construction that we're grappling with do you want to start first since i just went on a little rant (laughs) well sure um yeah i mean i'm into it you know um I mean, I think, like, to some extent, we're all practitioners of something, right? Um, and, and I think it behooves us to be sort of upfront about where we're coming from. Because even though as scholars, we try to be objective, quote unquote, whatever that even really means in the humanities. Um, I mean, we're all, you know, we've all got our sort of, our little piece of the, you know, the universe where we sort of have planted ourselves. Um, you know, we look at things this way, not that way. We prioritize this stuff because, you know, maybe when we were five years old, we had X experience. Um, and so I think, I think to some extent, even when we're not scholar practitioners in that sort of very integrated sense of we literally practice the thing that we study, um, that's always a paradigm that's, that's relevant to some extent, uh, when we sort of think about our scholarship on a meta level. Um, and so, I mean, I, I know we've sort of, uh, we've had this debate in the academy for so, so long now about, you know, is, is it an advantage? Is it, is, it, is it a disadvantage? You know, do we try to keep them separate? Do we really embrace the fact that they're integrated? What do we do? Um, and I, it's not that I don't think it's worth talking about those issues, but to some extent, I think maybe it's time we sort of move beyond like kind of harping on like, what does it mean that we're scholar practitioners and really try to sort of like make the best of that. Um, you know, use our positionalities to sort of acknowledge maybe where our blind spots are um, and and then really sort of use, right, the, the, the depth that that position gives us um, to sort of really explore what, what some of these things that clearly we're very passionate about studying actually are for us. Um, and maybe they won't be that same thing for everybody that reads our work. Um, but that's fine, too, right, because we're not the only scholar out there that does this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I would say, you know, to build on that, just that from my lens is, you know, definitely both scholar and practitioner of this yoga stuff that, that I think we are all a a makeup of our experiences of what we know, and to say that we can never walk into anything and be completely objective, I guess, as my sort of post post views um, is somewhere I live. And then also just from my own personal experience, I'll say, I, during my master's, I wrote actually on Islam, and I even helped write a book on Shi Islam, and I was very much part of doing scholarship in that world, and a complete outsider. I'm not Muslim. 
I'm not of, you know, that is not my culture. And as a scholar of doing both, I will say for myself, it has been, I'm able to get that more depth um, of experience and of critical analysis within the space that I'm studying versus without. Because I have some some more points of reference and those layers of my own personal experience in it that I did not have when I was studying Islam. So just to sort of, you know, from my own point of view in that conversation, I think where I've landed is it's given me a deeper lens, uh, a better, uh, a better landscape to paint, I guess, if you will, by, by having that and not trying to separate that or say that I have this like perfect, clear consciousness that's coming at something completely objectively without any of my own experiences coloring that at all. So it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating broad strokes book and there's so much in it. Um, are there particular takeaways or particular insights or particular, what, what do you, what do you hope folks might most get out of this volume? Okay. I mean, sure. I mean, <laughs> I guess uh, for me, it's really, I hope that people learn to, to think for themselves, to be self-reflective in the most yogic of senses, to have more critical analysis, to recognize the beauty in the complexity of yoga, to be able to both locate themselves and also to be able to locate the rich context and pay homage to really that historical trajectory of yoga. For you. Yeah, I think I think my takeaway is is very similar. Um, I I'll put it this way: I I hope that people read this book, and by the time that they're done with it, they are comfortable with asking, but maybe not answering the question that's posed by the title. Because I think that, or at least maybe answering it for themselves, but in a sort of you know non dogmatic like non-universal like it has to always be this way for everybody forever kind of way um because ultimately right the whole point of the book is that there's this sort of great layered complexity uh to yoga and that it always has been there um that it's not as though you know somehow like we're in this sort of novel landscape in this modern world where we're having to sort of separate authentic and inauthentic yoga and everything is you know sort of commodified and bastardized and like it's 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 always been this mess of stuff right and the mess is beautiful um there's nothing ultimately that is sort of unitary right and and singular when you look at human culture um and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, it's the rhizome. Uh, so this reminds me of much of what you say in chapter eight, your chapter on gurus, lineages, and yogic authority. Perhaps it's the top of mind because we were having this conversation with some students in the Zoom tutorial just, just before I got on this call. Um, what do you say in that chapter about gurus, lineages, and yogic authority? Uh, what should yoga students do if they're looking for... Uh, lineage should they look for lineage does it matter does it change like you know i don't want to put words in your mouth but sort of that seems to be a very important line of inquiry for so many people so i'd love for you to say a bit about what you say about that in the book i mean i think again it is really making sure that it's almost in some ways buyer beware in terms of make sure that you're paying attention to who you're you're putting your time into and that is not to say that there has not been wonderful lineages and gurus and charismatic authorities that have gifted, 
beautiful philosophies to the world and also to recognize the sort of humanity in that, to recognize power dynamics, to recognize systems of hierarchy, to not go into something and think that, again, that there's a perfect authentic space where harm doesn't occur or where you may not be, you know, in some sort of power dynamic. So I think, again, it's saying that we need to recognize lineages. We need to to be able to see how they have moved and disseminated within the world. We also have to recognize the humanity of the individuals within those lineages. Because you think of somebody like Muktananda, right? Or who's had a, had a, a vast influence on Tantra in the West. And also you think about some of his actions um, and, and not necessarily not having that conversation because it's hard because we need to have those hard conversations and complicate those things as well. And at the same time, we also, I think it, it's an injustice of us not to be able to continue to have those lineages or have that knowledge um, as something that is a gift to the world in some ways. That's, I think, sort of my take on trying to complicate that conversation of guru as really something heavy. <laughs> it's a heavy conversation. It, it, it takes rigor in understanding that as well. And I think that's very much kind of a a both and sort of chapter, right? Um, As Krista said, both kind of acknowledging uh, not only the historical importance, but really the continued importance of these lineages, uh, but also in a sense being being critical of that, right? And being not just critical, but but even just sort of like analytical of it. Um, Again, going back to like the the big takeaway, right? Historically, there have been tons and tons of competing lineages that have said different things. Um, And so I think, again, we might personally sort of resonate with one thing or another. Uh, But it's important to recognize that people have sort of always disagreed. um, And there have always been these human dimensions uh, to the way that yoga has been transmitted and disseminated. Um, and that certainly extends to, you know, kind of power dynamics and, and all that sort of stuff that we grapple with today um, that has historically been there. It might have just sort of looked a little bit different because everything looked a little different a thousand years ago. And then just again, just from a sort of meeting the market with what they have been asking for is people want to know who are these figures. So, again, it was us taking this uh, this sort of historical look and this sociocultural contextual look at some of the main figures in yoga uh, and describing them a little bit more and, and adding them to the conversation in ways that, that we believe are both necessary and also people are, are curious about. But again, with the rigorous research involved in that. Pity. Fascinating. Pity. <laughs> um, is there, was there, were there any other aspects of the book that you wanted to speak about today? I mean, I think what I would just, I would hope for is that this book causes more conversation um, and that that if those folks listening have questions or, you know, would like to engage in any sort of way to be able to continue to open the dialogue. So I think, you know, this book is asking for an opening of dialogue um, as well as really trying to dial in and... Um, in some ways rig up this story of yoga in a way that that creates a picture um, for people to have, to be able to point and have reference to these definitions, to these concepts, to these complexities. And again, to have that as a, as a takeaway of, okay, I need to go out here and read more and study more and do more and talk to Raj and talk to all these other people that are, are doing the work within yoga, as well as do their own personal 
self-reflective work of the practice of yoga itself. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, this was, it, it was, good God, it was the most difficult book I've, I've ever written. Uh, not that I've written that many, right? But, but of, the, of the three. No. Um, it was, I mean, it really, it shocked me um, how difficult this book was. Um, I think part of that was because, you know, I mean, you are trying to sort of marshal like 3,000 plus years worth of information. Uh, but part of it was also, in a sense, sort of like how personal it ultimately was, right? I think it's also the most personal book I've ever written, even though there's sort of like the the least of like my first person kind of, you know, pontificating in there. Um, and And yeah, I mean, I think just kind of having started from that space myself, um, where, you know, when Krista and I first started sort of having these discussions of like, well, what should go in there? And like, how do we structure this? Um, there were, there were so many questions and there were so many different directions that we could go. Um, and, you know, I, I think we sort of decided on some of those paths and we answered some of those questions by the end of it. Cause like we had to put something down on paper, but, but ultimately, you know, as, as she said, I think that for, for us, for me, at least it was this sort of kind of point of departure, right? It's an opening. Um, it leaves a lot of space to kind of go in a lot of different directions. And so that's kind of, yeah, that's also what I really hope people will sort of take away from it is that like, this isn't like you read this book and now suddenly you know what yoga is. Um, it, like you start, right? And then and then continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is really our 20 years of scholarship, trying to put it into a container and share uh, so that people can then, yeah, continue on their own paths of yoga. If nothing else, it's 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 um it's a provocative title, obviously. Um, uh, uh, rather than um, arriving at what yoga is, one can arrive at fruitful ways of inquiry, fruitful means of assessment analysis. And I, I've said this a number of times, even on the podcast, my questions are meant to be generative, right? I'm not I'm not looking for a particular response. I have a sense in my head of what resonates or, you know, what the book is driving at, but they're meant to be generative. And this is a book that, from my perspective, is intended to, um, to, to generate, to facilitate conversation, mm -hmm. conscious, critical conversation uh, about this thing called yoga. Yeah. For sure, right? Answering questions and also making those answers a little bit <laughs> open to assessment, exactly. And 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 as Anya said, it was really hard to write. It was also such a passion project and such a pleasure. And there's truly nobody else I would rather write a book with. Um, and so much credit to her experience and expertise of of indexing and editing and all of that. I'm not sure the book would ever happen. <laughs> The joke is, I mean, I wrote one of the chapters while driving across the country because I was also, you know, working full time and I'm single momming. So lots of love to Anya for her for her extra label labor and getting this out into the world. Oh, my gosh. We'll save. I, yeah, there's there's I don't think there's anybody else I could have written this book with. Um, but, you know, I think to some extent, like Krista and I are on these very parallel and complementary kind of life paths. Um, and it, it, yeah, it really worked out. I'm very happy. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. 
Well, um, um, what to say? Uh, birds are very much like uh, uh, birds. There's a there's a, a Freudian slip. I was about to say books are very much like birds. Like there's labor involved, uh, a great deal of labor, and mm. it's it's a transformative and fulfilling and painful process. And 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 I mean, essentially, you know, this is both your baby. You've co-parented this book, so I can only imagine it's the ways in which the ways in which you have mutually enriched each other through the process. Fantastic. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Raj, for having us. For those of you out there in internet land listening, <laughs> we have been speaking with uh, Anya Foxen and Krista Kuberi on Is This Yoga Concepts, Histories, and the Complexities of Modern Practice? Brand new Rutledge. 2021 like i think it came out yesterday or something like that um until next time stay safe stay sane keep listening keep reading and keep contemplating uh what yoga is or is not take care